the FT. Hello, welcome to the best of the FT, the collector's gold edition of the Financial Times podcasts and videos from the past week. I'm Henry Mance. On this program, the benefits of tracking your heart rate at work, why the US government is being too secretive about trade, and a rather scary prediction about artificial intelligence. But of course we start with FIFA, football's governing body. As one person joked, it has spent years trying to get Americans interested in soccer, and it has certainly interested the FBI. Here's what we have so far. 14 indictments, four separate guilty pleas, $150 million in alleged bribes, and a conspiracy, alleged, that lasted 24 years. Can FIFA's President Sepp Blatter really survive? Over to Gideon Rackman, the FT's chief foreign commentator and a man who has actually had dinner with Mr Blatter. He's either got to say that, uh, you know, admit that he had something to do with what was going on in an organisation that he, after all, runs, or appear to be massively stupid and not to have noticed that the organisation he was running was endemically corrupt. Blatter is 79 years old and has been in his job since 1998. What is he actually like? He comes across as enormously bland, he says nothing of interest, but he's a fantastically astute political player. He's kept himself in position, and it's not just that he's warded off direct corruption of allegations against him. It's interesting, if you look at the people who've actually been drummed out of FIFA for corruption, interestingly, they have tended to be people who've challenged Blatter directly. So the man who ran against him for the presidency in 2002, Isahiyatu, subsequently failed and then was accused of corruption. Mohammed bin Hammam, who spoke about challenging Blatter and was an important official from Qatar, also drummed out of world football on corruption allegations, but it's never touched Blatter himself. The other big question is whether the investigations will overturn FIFA's decision to award the 2018 World Cup to Russia and the 2022 World Cup to Qatar. Gideon Rackman's view? If I had to bet now, I would say Qatar will lose the World Cup, but Russia will keep it. The basic rationale being that Russia has more friends in the world and less time until its World Cup kicks off. Enough about football officials who receive gold watches onto more modern wearables. Some employers have given their staff smart watches and other devices in order to track their activity. The FT's Sarah O'Connor has herself spent this week hooked up to various gadgets. She spoke to Chris Brower of Goldsmiths, University of London, who said that employees could use wearables to answer some important questions. Under what conditions am I most productive? Under how much does my sleep impact my productivity at work? Uh, how, how linked is my focus and concentration levels in the morning with my productivity throughout the day? Uh, how, is it useful for me to go out at lunchtime and spend the time outside and get natural sunlight? If employers have access to the data, wearables take on a whole new dimension. Big Brother is on your wrist. Conversely, obviously, if that all that information is available to their employers and they have visibility into all of that, then they also could potentially make decisions with regards to resource allocation, responsibilities, promotions, retention of employees. Those risks did not escape Rob Armstrong, head of the FT's Lex column. It's an invasion of my... Uh... My privacy and my dignity, obviously, right? I have a contractual relationship with my employer. I give you the work, you give me the money. And outside of that, you know, you as my employer can go to hell. So will wearables take off? Simon Hall of PA Consulting told Sarah O'Connor that it all depends on exactly what your job is. Uh, Well, I think we're not very convinced uh, at the moment is your average office worker. Where we think it's very useful as in high um, impact environments where the individual that's wearing the technology either has to perform a task in a way where uh, it's sensitive to having both of your hands available, where it's a high risk environment like a power station or something similar to that, 
or where the individual is relied upon heavily to react in a certain way and their own well-being, their physiology is important to the task. Now, what should governments keep secret? There's a fight in the US over the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade deal negotiated by Barack Obama with Japan and 10 other economies in Asia and Latin America. But no one really knows what the deal says because the government's draft positions aren't public. The FT's Alan Beatty is furious. First, here is how secret the deal actually is. The governments involved, and particularly the US, have gone to extraordinary lengths to keep the negotiating text secret. Even senators and congressmen are only allowed to look at them in a secure location without taking away notes. Some people say that's fine. You shouldn't show your hand in a negotiation with other countries. Alan Beatty's view? Well, this would be a valid objection to publishing individual countries' internal negotiating strategies in great detail, but not to releasing the draft negotiating texts already shared between the different governments. Another justification is that the trade deal is like the nuclear deal with Iran. Nonsense, said Alan Beatty. This is not at all analogous. Nuclear weapons negotiations involve national security secrets about technology and deployment that can never be revealed, lest terrorists and rogue stakes get hold of them. Senator Barbara Boxer put it well, the TPP is a matter of commerce, not national security. Let's skip to the broader point. TPP might pass, and it might not. But given how it's been managed, it doesn't really deserve to. If it does get passed, a deal forced through under this kind of hide-the-ball secrecy will make a nice bogeyman for all the perceived ills of globalisation in the future. Finally, artificial intelligence. It sounds ridiculous to say that robots might be the end of humanity or the answer to all our problems, but it's not, at least according to Nick Brostrom of the University of Oxford. I do think that the kind of mid-range outcomes, mixed blessing we kind of muddle through and things are kind of okay but not that great, I think that gets less and less probable the farther into the future we extrapolate and that the longer-term destiny for humanity, I think, is, is more likely to be in either of those spins, either extinction or something as bad as extinction or uh, an extremely utopian outcome. Don't worry. These things nearly always end with utopias, right? Don't they? That's it for this week. Please send your questions and comments to audio at ft.com. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.